Greetings, and welcome to another edition of Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King, this is an expositional tour of the book of Acts. We're taking a look at how God began and grew the, the early church, and we're learning principles, concepts that work to this very day. And while we can peer into the past and we can see into a very different culture, very different way of life, uh, we see that God doesn't change, that the Holy Spirit acts the, the way he has always acted, and we are seeing tremendous encouragement in what we find here in the book of Acts and the way that the early church spread. And we are uh, nearing the end of this journey as we are accompanying the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24. So today we'll be taking a look at Acts chapter 24. And Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem as he feared as he believed he did, and yet he felt compelled to go to Jerusalem anyway. And sure enough, he was arrested, falsely accused. A plot was uncovered to uh, take his life, and he was, in the, the wisdom of the local authorities, taken to pr in protective custody down to the coast to Caesarea Maritima, where he was going to uh, be there under the governor of Judea, uh, Felix. And that's where he is uh, to have his trial uh, concerning the events of Jerusalem. So that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 24. We're going to look at the whole chapter today, verses 1 through 27. And we're going to see a great contrast. We're going to see a contrast between the justice that takes place here on earth, the justice below, versus the justice of God above. In other words, the gospel. And this great contrast is going to live out in the lives of, of Felix and Paul as he uh, has encounters with Felix over the coming years as he is held here in Caesarea. So let us uh, go right to the scriptures and get started here in Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when they had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jew Jewish, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speaking about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Well, let's begin then with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this account of your servant Paul. And Lord, I pray that we can understand from this today what you would have us to know. We pray, Lord, that we will be encouraged and strengthened by it. I pray that you will give me a opportunity to make understanding of it. And Lord, I pray that all will find benefit from it. We thank you, Lord, for the great gospel of Jesus Christ, for your work of the Spirit to give us enlightenment to the Scriptures. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there you have an interesting scene laid out before us. And Tertullus here that comes, he is basically a lawyer. Uh, the Roman laws and the justice system were very complicated, much like our own today. And if lawyers were needed, professionals were needed to know how to properly navigate, how to properly talk to the authorities, how to speak their language, so to speak. And so the Jews uh, very wisely get themselves an attorney and bring him along to be their spokesman. But this justice below is something that I want to take a look at uh, momentarily here, because uh, we see examples here of what's going on. We see a great contrast between the justice below and the justice above as mentioned in Paul's uh, speech with Felix. Justice below has these characteristics, and we see every one of these in this passage. And there's more things that could be said about justice below, but uh, I think this will be sufficient for us to get a good start. Uh, first of all is flattery. And you saw there in verses 2 and 3 where... Uh, Tertullus opens up, worldly justice is corrupted by human nature. And this is what we see at work here. He opens up by saying, most excellent Felix. And, you know, he calls him this, and this is a, a very high accolade. This, the Romans were very rigid in the proper address of people. 
and there were certain ranks of addresses. There was a certain ranks for the emperor, there was a certain rank for the senate, and there was just below that a certain rank that is translated here as most excellent. And so this is a very high accolade, second only to the, the senate, and uh, of course the emperor really being a category all of his own. But here we have, and, and then he uh, commends him for the peace. We enjoy much peace. And this is ironic. When we learn who Felix is and what he has done, this is a violent man who, who conducted his office violently. And then he's given credit here for the reforms that they have seen. What kind of reforms is he speaking of? All I can think that, uh, that Felix did as a real benefit to the area was perhaps the infrastructure reforms, always trying to impress Rome with building new roads and, and things of that nature. And so, you know, there, there were reforms done, there were infrastructure done, and uh, he says, well, we accept this with great gratitude. And it's ironic, coming from the Jews, that this would be the way that they open up, because the Jews themselves, there were many factions among them that would overthrow Rome in a moment if they could. If they had the power, they would have thrown them off long ago. They despised the Roman occupation, they had... Uh, no gratitude toward them whatsoever, viewing what they had done to their people and, and to the land and everything else that they had done as a great tragedy. And so this is uh, profound what we see him saying here, and, and it's flattery, it's just blatant flattery. And he says, you know, so, so I won't detain you further. In other words, he knows that he's laying it on thick, and he says, well, you know, that's enough of that, let's move on. In verse 4, but this reminds us of what is said in Proverbs 26, 28, that a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. In contrast, Paul in verse 10, when he gives his uh, introduction, he says just very plainly, he states a simple fact. Um, he says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And so you've got a positive word there, the word cheerfully, but notice he says that word about himself. He doesn't say any particular flattery of Felix. Well, let's see what else Tertullus does. He does exaggeration. You look in verse 5, we found this man a plague. And here he's using a word to really insult the character of Paul, to characterize him as something that's just bad everywhere and everywhere he goes. There's no room here for Paul to be well-intentioned. There's no room for Paul to be simply in error. He's being referred to as a destructive force. So they're not charging him with error. They're charging him with destruction, willful destruction. And look how he goes on to say this. He says that uh, he is a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Look, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And so look at the exaggeration here. A riots among all the Jews. Well, Paul hasn't met all the Jews, and quite a few of the Jews have come to follow the way and respect and follow Paul. And then he says throughout the world. Paul had not been throughout the world, and mind you, the Romans defined the world pretty much as their empire, and then there was that other stuff they hadn't conquered yet. And Paul had not been through even half, not even a fourth of the Roman Empire at the time, he'd been to a great many cities, but those were concentrated in Asia Minor and in Greece. And so, 
we see an exaggeration here by Tertullus. And the question I have for you is this, is exaggeration any less than lying? See, human beings, we have the tendency to think that if there's a kernel of truth to what we say, if it's based on a little bit of fact, then it's somehow less of a sin to just enlarge it, to just spread it, to just make it a bigger thing in order to make our case. And we somehow think that exaggeration is less than a lie. But if we examine how Jesus handles the laws in the Sermon on the Mount, we can have no doubt that any deviation from the absolute truth, even unknowingly, is a lie. And if exaggeration isn't technically a lie, look what Tertullus does in the next verse, in verse 6. He outright lies. He says he even tried to profane the temple. Now, there's two problems here. First of all, he says he tried to profane the temple, which means they're not even saying that he did, but that he planned to. And it's exceedingly difficult in the law of that day and in the law of today to actually prove criminal intent. And so he's got a major problem here. We know from Luke's account that this just isn't true. Paul made no attempt to profane the temple. He was trying to honor the law of the Jews in what he was doing there in the temple. It was an outreach to the Jews, and particularly to the Jews who were also Christians, to show them that he respected the temple and respected the law. Psalm 12 says this, Everyone utters lies to his neighbors. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Lies are very, very serious. And I wonder if we hadn't considered exactly why lies are so serious. Think about what a lie is. Lie is a construct. Lie is something that we invent, and yet we portray it as reality. A lie is a misrepresentation of reality itself, and therefore it's an attack upon its creator who made all things and said it's very good. We are misrepresenting what he has done and what he is currently doing in holding all things together. It is, in essence, taking God's place in constructing a reality and we're doing it for a selfish motive for our own benefit. Now, how could Paul take all this without lashing out about it? That's what I want to know. Paul, later we'll see, uh, speaks with Felix about self-control is one of the topics. I don't understand where Paul found the self-control to, to be so courteous, to be so calm, and to just bring out the facts without a bit of contempt or bitterness in it because of the blatant lies that they are bringing before him. He is very well behaved and very self-controlled. Well, let's look at something else that uh, might go off uh, unnoticed here if we hadn't. There is negligence involved on behalf of the, the legal proceedings here. And look in verse 22. Uh, Felix says, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, okay, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And so this Lysias, this 
he's also known as Claudius Lysias, the man who, uh, under whose authority Paul was arrested and, and taken to the governor and everything for his protection. This man's a key witness in all these things because he saw the events and he saw Paul's arrest. And so uh, he is a key witness. He needs to come and on behalf of the empire bear witness to what actually happened that day. And as Felix uh, points this out, we see Felix understands this to be the case. But two years pass by the end of the chapter and Claudius Lysias has not shown up. He has not given his account of things. And the questions remain. Where did they drop the ball? Did Felix never summon him? Or did Claudius Lysias not heed the summons? Did he get moved on to another post but never fulfilled his obligation for this act of justice to come bear witness to these things? How did this go on for two years except for negligence and corruption? It's an Israelite law that there, there should be a proper way to do justice. It says in Deuteronomy 1.16, I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. And the Roman law had no less standards in it. The Roman law was very strict about a proper a course of justice that people should be able to face their accusers and have a timely proceeding and, and be able to have a, a court of the proper jurisdiction and that witnesses be brought forward and everything established by witnesses. They took the law and due process very seriously as, as many do today. And yet something falls apart here. There is some kind of negligence involved. There's also attempted bribery here. If we look at uh, Felix's situation, Luke gives us the commentary at the same time he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. And so he sent for him off and cut. Felix keeps him around, summons him from time to time, partly to satisfy his curiosity, having a great deal of knowledge about the way, that is, about early Christianity. But clearly... He also is hoping that Paul will offer him some kind of a bribe to let him go. If you look up bribery in the Bible, you're going to find a great deal about it. And you're going to find that it is very concerning for God. When he sees it among his people, he criticizes it. When he sees it even in other nations, it brings his condemnation and his judgment. Look what it says in Isaiah 123 to the people of Israel about bribery going on. He says, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. And Or how about Proverbs 17.23, the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. Bribery is mentioned many times in the scriptures, and it's something that we ought to be taking a close look at. There's also partiality going on here. If we look at the last verse of the chapter, something uh, subtle is done here. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. We'll talk in detail about why that was next time. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So he chooses favoritism with the Jews over justice. And 
the Jews over Paul. This is partiality, and this is uh, greatly condemned in the scriptures, that there should not be any kind of a, a partiality among people. The encouragement to the people of Israel was this, you shall not fall with fall in with the many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Even if everybody agrees on a topic, if it is not right, shall not agree with it in the court of law. Majority does not rule, justice rules. Right and wrong rules. And that's how it goes here. The corrupt nature of man and his selfishness is perverting the justice. And this is the way of the world. That our nature, that our sin nature, works itself out through all of our institutions. A justice system or, or whatever institution we conduct business in. Now, unless we look back on this account and we get to judging, we need to understand that each and every one of us shares in this nature. And although we're not necessarily in a position like Felix or, or like the Jews to uh, pervert justice like this, we do some of these things in order to get our way. We exaggerate from time to time. We in, use flattery from time to time. We outright lie from time to time in order to get what we want out of a given situation. And we know this is not right. And we know that it is against God. And it is everywhere worthy of condemnation. But our reminder through the gospel of Jesus Christ is what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians when he lists a great deal of sins. And he says, such were some of you. That we must always keep in perspective that, that we have been delivered from those things and not, not let them rule over us anymore. So despite this nature, we're commanded to be subject to such authorities. That's right. The Bible commands us that even though there's corruption in these authorities, even though human nature it weaves its way through all of our various institutions, working itself out in terms of injustice and, and wrong, we are to be subject to those very same governing authorities. We're to pay our taxes. We're even to pray for them. Now, we are to hold them accountable. We see examples of that uh, by Paul here in the book of Acts, that he holds them accountable to do justice properly. He appeals to his Roman citizenship to avoid an unjust beating. And he uh, will appeal to his right later to, to have his case heard in Rome. And so the, there is justice below, and we are to hold authorities accountable to it. In contrast to this is justice from above, and we begin to see that as Paul gives his defense. Let's take a look at Paul's defense here momentarily. In uh, verse 10, he begins it, and maybe there's a little flattery here, but he doesn't say anything untrue. When the governor had nodded him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And he says in verse 11, you can verify the timeline. And then he gives an outright denial in verse 12 of any wrongdoing. He says very plainly, they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, which 
uh, granted, would be a rare thing for Paul. He's normally stirring up a crowd, but simply by preaching the gospel, not doing anything wrong. And he says in verse 13, he calls them out on this, they can't prove their charges. In other words, there's not going to be a witness come forward that's, that's going to, to be able to corroborate their, their lies. So he did not uh, use excessive flattery. He did not exaggerate or lie. He simply tells the truth. When you know someone, you know what they would say. And those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, as we walk with him, as we abide with him, we know what he would have us to do, both by his living example uh, and all the great commands of Scripture. We know exactly what we ought to do. And even more than those two things is the fact that we have his spirit to encourage us, to teach us, to guide us in all that he would have us to do. Look at Proverbs 10.9 here. How then ought we to walk? Whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. There's a, a hint of a, a good thing here. That integrity brings a security. Security with God. Uh, we can have perfect integrity and still have bad things done to us. But we have security in our knowledge of God. And Jesus gives that same encouragement. Listen to what he says here as he's speaking about being the good shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The promise of Jesus is this, that his sheep will hear him, that his sheep will obey him, and that he will take care of his sheep to eternity. Now that doesn't mean that we might not have a bad go of it in the short term, but in the long term, he will take care of his own. Paul here speaks and acts in integrity, in faith, that Jesus will take care of him. So in verse 14, look, Paul gives his situation. He explains himself. He says, this I do confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Well, according to verse 22, Felix is pretty well acquainted with what was then being called the way. In other words, Christianity, he's pretty well acquainted with it. He's up to speed on it. He knows its basic teachings. He knows about its spread. He knows how it began. So he would know of Jesus of Nazareth, having been alive during those days, uh, but very young when Jesus was uh, walking. And so he, uh, he is familiar with the way. And Paul's defense is that he essentially has the same faith as the Jews. Now, this is a really important point, and I don't want this to be overlooked. Why does Paul basically appeal, hey, we're the same. I'm a Jew. I believe what they believe, and I'm just now acknowledging that everything we believe is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And he does that to connect himself with Judaism because Judaism was legal, and Judaism was 
approved by the empire and allowed to be worshipped. So if he could maintain the status of Christianity being not a fringe religion, not something different, not something new, but Judaism fulfilled, then indeed it would have better status with Rome. He points out their lack of crucial witnesses in the next verses. In verses 18 and 19, he says, you know, and he kind of cuts himself off. Some Jews from Asia, and he goes, hey, they're the ones that ought to be here. They're the ones that ought to be bearing witness because they were the ones who first pointed to Paul in Acts 21-27. Jews from Asia are the ones who saw him in the temple, stirred up the crowd, and laid hands on him. And then remember what Lysias, the tribune in Jerusalem, said in his letter to Felix. He said, when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against a man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Well, Paul's frontline accusers, these Jews from Asia, don't show up. And so Paul is pointing this out. They're the ones who ought to be here and bearing witness to these things. And then finally, he wraps up his uh, defense here with what ended the council meeting, the resurrection. And I wonder if the uh, people that had come from Jerusalem at this time were a mixed bunch, like they were in the council. Were there some Sadducees among them? where they're both Sadducees and Pharisees, that he's going to try this again. But he brings it up anyway, and he says, it's because I, you know, they're, they're mad because I cried out that it is because of the resurrection that I am here. And so, um, I cried out while standing among them as respect with the resurrection. And the resurrection itself is somewhat a showstopper idea. It happened to Paul in chapter 17. It happened to Paul in front of the council in chapter 21. It happens here that the resurrection kind of becomes the last word. Well, Paul gave really very little to Felix, but what he gave was good and true. And Felix, having a good knowledge of the way then, could be in a position to rightly judge these things. Now, this is all very interesting. And there's some uh, things here to be gained, but something I really want to point out here as we, uh, as I try to change this uh, in great futility, try to change this scene here for you. Um, there is justice above. Now, what's interesting about this, of course, is the corruption of the authorities as they deal with Paul. Also very interesting is the, the fact that the, uh, is Paul's defense, where Paul talks about faith in Christ Jesus and specifically three things, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. But by far the most interesting point is that he lays these things out in front of Felix. Now look at this, and it's really only two verses here. Verses 24 and 25, Felix calls him a few days later. He's got his wife with him. They call Paul. Hey, let's hear Paul speak about things. Paul speaks about faith in Jesus. And there's something we need to know about the audience. A couple things we need to know about Felix and Drusilla as Paul speaks on these things. Felix, of course, was the Roman procurator or governor uh, of Judea. And he was governor of Judea from the years 52 to the year 60. 
He was an oppressive ruler. At one point, he even conspired with robbers to have Jonathan the high priest murdered. And he was on his third wife. Uh, he was a very connected person, very influential. His second wife, for instance, was the granddaughter of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. This is the elite of the elite we're talking about here. Now, his third wife, Drusilla, uh, is the one that is with him at the moment. He was appointed to his position by Claudius, Emperor Claudius. But Nero, when he came along, didn't like the tactics of Felix. And as we'll see next time, uh, he was basically given the blame for the Jewish instability that resulted in war starting six years later. The very country that Paul and Felix find themselves in now, six years from then, would be involved in a war between the Jews and the Romans. Drusilla was born about 38 AD to Herod Agrippa. He was uh, the king of Judea that's mentioned in the Gospels. She had an arranged marriage with a king and so was married when Felix met her and was 16 years old. Felix met her, fell in love with her, and convinced her to leave her husband and marry him, which of course was against Jewish law, uh, Drusilla being a Jew. So these are the two people that Paul is speaking to. And his primary topic, of course, is faith in Christ Jesus. And the consistent testimony of the New Testament would be that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul would be speaking of. But more than that, to talk about faith in Christ Jesus, of course it begins with faith, his atoning sacrifice, his resurrection, uh, but it also involves the new birth as a result of that faith, the new life and obedience to God, the cost of that faith and devotion to him who bought us with such a price. And so Paul would be speaking of all these aspects of faith in Christ Jesus. But then it gives us a three-point uh, subtopic here, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And the irony is he stands here speaking to Felix about righteousness. This man had, was being unrighteous at that very moment by desiring a bribe. He had been unrighteous in obtaining a a wife that was not his own. He had been unrighteous in many ways to get where he was, all the while showing this lack of control, this lack of self-control, breaking laws, breaking justice, uh, breaking patterns of cultural norms in order to gain what he wanted. This is a lack of self-control. And Paul also speaks of him uh, with regard to the coming judgment. And this is amazing because Felix is also an unjust judge. He's not seeking the truth about Paul's case. He's holding him indefinitely without a charge. And then at the end of his time there, he shows partiality and leaves him in prison in order to do someone else a favor. This is in great contrast to what Paul would be speaking of, the God who judges perfectly and righteously. The God who knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart and the very author of the perfect law itself. And this draws us back to what he had already mentioned when he was in the presence 
of the uh, Jews at the time, when Paul gives his defense, he speaks of the hope in God, and he says, um, there'll be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so he says, so I take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Isn't that knowing that there's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, and then a judgment of that, wouldn't we then endeavor to have a clear conscience? Well, Felix has nothing, uh, it has no clear conscience. He has nothing but a clouded conscience, a conscience of sin, and this has to be disturbing to him. And this is something he would know. If we look at Daniel chapter 12, a popular passage, something that he would be familiar with as having familiarity with the Jews, as having a Jewish wife, and a wife could certainly enlighten him on this later if he wanted her to, but this is an Old Testament concept, this idea of a resurrection of the just and the unjust. It says in Daniel, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so Paul was basically alluding to Daniel 12 too, that there's going to be this resurrection of the just and the unjust. And Felix, having rather accurate uh, knowledge of the way, would be familiar with the concept. And Felix, with this knowledge, he had to know, with his knowledge of the way, that the difference between the everlasting life and the everlasting contempt was Jesus Christ. And so it says back there that he was alarmed. And this is a fascinating thing. He, he had a rather accurate uh, news thing, but look at the reaction here. Um, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And he sends Paul away. Now the question I have for you is, are you alarmed? Does this at all concern you? What the Bible says about humanity, the world shows for. The Bible says that we are fallen and the world shows the evidence of it. The Bible says that we are cursed with death and the Bible shows the evidence of it. The greatest proof of the testimony of the Bible regarding life itself and the existence of sin and the existence of God, the biggest evidence is death. Now, yeah, there's sin and there's madness in the world and, and even in our very own hearts, but death is kind of the ultimate thing that none of us can avoid. It will touch us uh, closely at, at one time or another several times through our lives and then ultimately reach every single one of us. We know something is wrong. So we're alarmed. Now, there's also goodness and hope and love in the world, and that shows us that there's something good. There's a God who shows love and mercy. We have, as the Bible says, eternity written on our very hearts. We know something is right and good, and we know that life does not end at this death. And the gospel is what puts it all together. If we review Paul's outline, he talks about righteousness. There is a God, and he is perfect. And to dwell with him, we must be in agreement, for he cannot even have sin in his presence. And if we look at what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount regarding the law, we know that there's rules, but just strictly following the letter of the rules is not enough. Jesus says it's really about the heart. 
He says murders about hatred in your heart and adultery is about lust in your heart. And then he turns to the positive things of worship and he says, it's not about, you know, whether or not you pray, it's how you pray. Do you pray with sincerity? It's not about whether or not you give and help the poor. It's about why you do this. And so Jesus steps everything up a notch to show us that the righteousness required by God is beyond our reach. In fact, he concludes by saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. And so he speaks about righteousness, and then he speaks about self-control. Why do we sin? Well, we sin because we lack self-control. We're given over to it. The Bible describes the non-believer as being a slave to sin, as being dead in sins and trespasses. And we cannot by ourselves break the pattern. We cannot conform to God's righteous demand. And it's too late anyway. If today, for the rest of our lives, we behave perfectly, it doesn't erase the sins that we've committed in the past. Those still hang over us and give us guilt. Then Paul speaks of judgment. We see the world winding down. We know that there's a judgment to come. We can even measure this winding down of the world now, and we see it coming apart in many ways. And after all is said and done, Books will be opened. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 20. There's a great judgment to come, and this is what Paul is speaking of. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. See that great and small? Yeah, that's you, Felix. You're the great one. I'm a nobody, but we'll both be there. Standing before the throne, and books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. See, judgment comes according to our deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And... Here's the important point. Let's, let's enlarge it for a moment, just so we can really take it in. Look at verse 15 here. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see that? We're judged by according to our works, but those whose names are in the book of life, which elsewhere in the book of Revelation is called the Lamb's Book of Life, in other words, this is Jesus' Book of Life, if your name is in that, you don't go into the fiery condemnation, the fiery judgment. Well, how can that be? How can that be the justice from above that some, all of them sinners, all of them great and small brought together, books of deeds open, none of us passing the test, how is it that some get a pass? How is it some get their name in the Lamb's Book of Life? They have repented and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we're met with the, the situation that we are in, when we're met with our sins, when we understand all that the world says about this re reality that we're speaking of, the command of Jesus is this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel.
turn, that means, turn from our ways of doing things, admit that it's wrong, but also to turn from it and follow after God and believe the good news. And the good news is about Jesus Christ, that he offered himself in our place. After he lived a perfect life, fulfilling all the righteousness that God had laid out for him to do, doing every single thing the Father wanted him to do, he laid down his life as an offering and rose again from the dead, which shows that his offering was right and good. And then he extends to all who trust in his name the offer of taking their sin upon himself on the cross and giving to them in exchange his righteousness that he has earned for perfect obedience to God, thus winning every believer a spot in the Lamb's book of life, to be resurrected to everlasting life. That's the gospel, the offer of Jesus to you. And it is a perfect fulfillment of justice because our sins just weren't passed over, just weren't ignored. They were paid for. And rather than being paid for by us in eternity in the lake of fire, they are paid for by the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for those things. What happened on the cross was more than a crucifixion. The very wrath of God for all those sins was laid upon him. And to enter into it, we need but repent and believe the gospel. Felix had these things revealed to him. And I want you to take a note of how close Felix was. Felix was speaking to none other than the Apostle Paul, the the greatest influence in early Christianity, spreading it through much of the empire. Felix already, before he met Paul, had a good knowledge of the way, according to what Luke puts here. And Felix has multiple meetings with Paul to learn even more. He was so close. Did he repent and believe ever? Well, it's certainly not accounted here, and his behavior by leaving Paul in prison would suggest, no, he didn't. Now, as Felix moves out of the scene, at the end of two years, he's reassigned by the next emperor, which happens to be Nero. Nero reassigns Felix because of his brutality, and Felix's brother has to intercede for him, for Nero not to lock him up. And we don't hear anything else about him in history. We don't know whether he repented or believed or changed. We don't know, and I think that is on purpose. I think the gospel leaves out his fate on purpose so that we're left looking at it as Felix did with the decision. And the question is, what about you? Are you close like Felix was? I've met a great number of people who are very, very close. They, they come to church weekly. They even get involved in some ways, and yet you cannot see upon them the change of heart. You cannot see this great impact in their lives. They don't have the confidence that they're going to heaven that people whose name are in the Lamb's Book of Life ought to have. They're shaky in their faith. And they lack in their following of Christ. And it is not the cause for their condemnation. It's a symptom. 
of their condemnation. They're so close. Are you close? Do you listen into sermons often and yet you still haven't crossed the line? You still haven't said, Jesus, whatever it is you want of my life, I'll give it to you because it's worth the eternal life that you provide? Have you still not engaged with a local congregation to be a part of what God is doing in your community and even in your household? These are things to consider as we see Felix's situation, we have to see it along with as our own. And then a greater encouragement here is if you're confident that you're not a Felix, that you're not just close, but that you're in Christ, then put yourself in the place of Paul in this situation and understand that sometimes the world is going to act unjustly against you. And what does Paul do? Does he compromise his beliefs in order to get out? Does he go do a fundraiser in order to get a bribe to Felix and get out of prison. No, he doesn't compromise his principles and he continues to preach the gospel even though he's preaching the gospel to the man that could decide his judicial earthly fate. He preaches the gospel and he's going to do it again in the next chapter to the next guy that comes along. And so this is an important principle, an important lesson here. The Apostle Paul said that he didn't consider the present sufferings of this world worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to the people of God. And indeed, he was right. There's nothing that can happen to us this side of eternity that will compare to the upside of eternity in Christ. So be encouraged in your present situation and understand that even in injustice and even in difficulty and even in suffering in this world, in Christ, it is all worth it. And it will all be put to the good purposes of God. Well, I hope you've uh, learned a thing or two today. I hope you've considered both these views and both things that we see with both Felix and Paul, their perspectives. And I encourage you to contact us if you have any questions, any concerns about what you've heard. If you want to understand more, uh, if you if you have things you want cleared up, please contact us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. And we'll answer all your questions and we can help even connect you with a local congregation in your area that faithfully serves the truth. Well, God bless you and enjoy reading your scriptures.